You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. I've finished my Coke, I've eaten my chocolate, and I've had my crisps, so I'm fired up for this morning. It should be a great morning. Uh, if this is our second week looking at the story of Elijah. Second week we're looking at the story of Elijah. Basically, this is a true story. It happened about 3,000 years ago. Ahab, who is a descendant of King David... Uh, David was considered sort of probably the greatest king in Israel's history. Uh, Ahab was about the seventh king afterwards, after Solomon. Unfortunately, he was a bad king. I'm just trying to set the story, set the scene for the story. He was a bad king. He, he didn't trust God like he should have done. I guess maybe some of us can relate to that. So he tried to manipulate things himself. In fact, what he did was he ended up marrying the girl next door. Um, not that that's always a bad thing, but the girl next door was from the next king, from the king of Sidon, and he married her daughter. His name was Jezebel, and the idea was to try and create some peace. How do I create peace with the next door neighbors? Oh, I'm, I'm married to the daughter. Her father was called King Ethbal. There's a clue in the name. He worshipped Baal, as did his nation. Whereas King Ahab, he was an Israelite, and he was to worship the living God. Obviously, Jezebel then comes and has a house. Uh, King Ahab provides for her, but she brings her religion. People end up stop following the living God, and they end up worshipping Baal. And obviously, when the king does it, the whole nation does it, so the nation gets in trouble. So God raises this zealous man. At this point, you'd all be cheering and go, Yes, Elijah, you're the man who turns up, conf- love it, thank you very much, Edward. <laughs> he comes and confronts King Ahab and says, what you're doing is wrong. God wants to say it's wrong. And to prove that it's wrong, God is going to stop the rain. Some of you think, why would God stop the rain? Why? Because actually the rain was a sign of blessing when they went to the promised land, and Baal was considered the God in charge of fertility and rain, and water, and you. And so what was happening is he's saying, Elijah was basically saying, look, the true God is going to prove that I'm in control. I will stop all this. He said it will stop for three and a half years. Elijah then thinks, oh, God, what am I going to do? God says, go and hide by this brook. So he hides by a brook so that he can be, uh, have fresh water, and the ravens bring him bread morning and evening, meat morning and evening as well. And in some respect, that's a whole background. And I could bring out four points, because I like doing that kind of stuff, which just say we could learn about lessons from Elijah. And if you had to think about it, you say, actually, God is the creator. He is worthy of worship. And I think that's what we've been doing this morning. God is our creator. He is worthy of our worship. And Elijah's life would have said that. He also said that Elijah's story tells us that God acts and proves the words of the prophets to be true. So the Elijah speaks out this word and God acts. And I think that, that, I believe that true today. I believe that God speaks and that actually spoken through his word, but I believe he speaks to us prophetically as well today and that actually he will act upon that to, to show that he is the living God. I think we could learn from this story that choosing not to go God's way leads to trouble. Now sometimes it's funny because we, we think, ah, maybe our way is better. Maybe like the Israelites, we just get tempted to follow somebody else. But I think if you had to look at the life of Elijah and, uh, and what was going on there, you could say that not going God's way leads to trouble. And fourthly, I would say 
there is a small faithful remnant who continue to love and worship God. Now, why do I say that? Because sometimes I think actually we think we're totally on our own. But actually God has this faithful remnant that love and worship him. There are others. Now, that's the background. That was just by way of introduction. Today, I want to tell you about one particular story. And I'm going to do the same as last week. So if you come here regularly, often we get the Bible and we, we go through it verse by verse. But I'm going to tell the story and then I will read from the Bible at the end. Okay. Due to the prolonged lack of rain, no dew, which we know went on for three and a half years, the brook dried up. Now, I don't know that this was the exact place. It's just trying to give us an illustration. The river that was running, the brook that was running, it it dried up. I just think about that. What must it have felt like for Elijah being here? The place where God told him to go suddenly dries up. The place that seemed safe and protection. He was hiding from King Ahab. King Ahab wanted to kill him. We know that. I just imagine what it must have been like day by day to sit here and to think, the water level's dropping. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When I, I don't know how he did it, but he cupped his hands in and drank. Hey, when I did it yesterday, it seemed to fill a bit quicker than it is today. And actually, I'm now scraping along the bottom to try and get some water here. And sometimes I think we can feel like that. We feel like we're eking to survive. I don't know about you, sometimes you can feel like this is how life is, is treating me. It's almost like, golly, things just seem to be drying up a bit. How do we trust God? It's almost like, well, God, I thought you said, and, and I went to the place and I obeyed. And we're going to find out a little bit more from this story. What happened was Elijah was thirsty, the water ran out. The Lord spoke and instructed Elijah to travel to a place called Zarephath. So he's been at this brook. And God said, go here. So I thought, I tried to do a map this week that helped. Because I think, where is it? Now, we, we, we think he traveled, it was about 75 miles. Now, I don't know about you, but you think that is quite some way to go, isn't it? I've actually signed up for a running race in two weeks' time that I'm to do 100 kilometers on a Saturday. At the time, it felt like a good idea. Now you suddenly think, it seems a bit crazy. You know what I'm saying? Why? This guy was traveling a long way. It, it would have been hot. It would have been dry. It would have been difficult. But actually, what he'd done is he said, I will surrender to God. You see, when he went up to there, which I know we can look on a map and you think, oh, golly, that looks like the top of the screen. Actually, he was going out of his own country. Zarephath was in Sidon. Now, obviously, you've already picked up on the story. So what you know from the story is Sidon was the next-door neighbor. So Sidon was where, who was it? King Ethbal ruled. Well, who did he worship? Baal. Who was his daughter? Jezebel. So Elijah was to leave the promised land, which God had given them, this place of safety and provision, and to go up here, which had now been taken into enemy territory. How amazing that God could provide for him there. Matthew Henry, who's a commentator, he said, to show Jezebel the impotency of her malice, God will find a hiding place for his servant 
even in her country. Now, I don't think that was easy. And again, you know, the more you look at these stories, the more truth I get. Zarephath actually means crucible. It wasn't where snooker started. It was a smelting pot. It was a hot place. It was a difficult place. It was a tough place. So Elijah gets up and he goes there. He's instructed to, when you get to Zarephath, this town that he's been sent, a widow will supply you with some food. I mean, we don't know. You know, I mean, it wasn't like he could phone ahead. It wasn't like he could text. It wasn't like he could be in contact. We do, I don't know that this was the widow. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to help. Some people had said to me, Pete, you speak quite fast. And uh, I thought, right, I'd stick a couple of pictures up. But he turns up and literally this widow and her son are collecting sticks. I don't know about you. I'd like to know the, the plan of God for the next 10 years, wouldn't you? Oh, God, give it to me clear, as long as it's good. <laughs> he, he didn't know this. All he knew is go to this place and you'll meet a widow. God so often guides us one step at a time, doesn't he? God says, look, I really want you to do this. Oh, God, how's that going to work out? No, no, trust me. Elijah goes and he trusts God. He doesn't do his own things. I mean, even like this, a widow, we know that widows were poor. But actually, she's there and she's available for God. I don't know how you feel even this morning. You might think, golly, I don't feel I've got much to offer. I tell you, God takes whatever you've got. I mean, God takes and uses this widow in this story. So he reaches the town gate. Elijah comes along. He reaches the edge of the community. She's gathering, like I say, these sticks. Part of me, as a, as a guy, that bothers me. Because sticks, you think, that's not going to be a big fire. Well, that says something, doesn't it? It's not going to be a big meal. You know what I'm saying? If you're a guy, you know the bigger the barbecue, the better it's going to be. I mean, we want it hot. We want it loaded, don't we? we want, you want stacks of meat out. It wasn't like this. She was gathering, literally, they think, a few sticks. Maybe she was weak and unable to carry much. I don't think it would have been a great sign. Anyway, Elijah sees the lady, and what he says to her, he says, would you mind giving me a drink? Again, I, I love this, don't you? I mean, he reaches out. He doesn't turn, I mean, if it had been me, I might have turned up and said, hey, you know, I'm God's servant. <laughs> you know, fetch me water. But now, actually, he humbly says, would you give me a drink? I guess it's quite like Jesus, really, isn't it? If you know, he meets a Samaritan woman at a well. He just uh, humbly says, would you mind serving me? Would you mind giving me a drink? He has this sign here. He doesn't wade in with demands. He gently comes, doesn't demand his rights. Oh, I think if I could learn that from the story. Anyway, she, she just goes off to get the water and suddenly says, actually, when you're going to go and get some water for me, would you mind bringing me something to eat? I'm really hungry. He calls out for her, says, basically, could you give me some bread? And at this situation, we then discover, sorry, just back slightly, it's my, my fault. He, he basically says to her, actually, I'm just desperate for something to eat. And then she declares, well, you really need to know a little bit about me. I've got nothing. You see, she then tells him, we are gathering these sticks because we're so poor. Literally, I've got a little bit of oil left. She says, and I've got a little bit of flour left, and I'm going to make this 
last bit of bread. And then me and my son were going to lay down and die. I mean, that was, the, that was the situation. That is what he discovers. I mean, just imagine what that must have felt like. Well, I don't even know if this was a result of the drought. You know what I'm saying? She was experiencing really, really hard times. Elijah then speaks faith to her. He says this, don't be afraid. It's funny, because the more I go through these stories, you just think, oh, God, it's rich in every way. You see, Elijah's eyes are not on the empty jar. Elijah's eyes are on the living God. And, and the reality is that she was thinking, God, I've got nothing left. There's nothing here. Where are your eyes? You see, I would say ever since Adam and Eve, I believe that in the garden, when they went away against God's way, fear came in. It says, doesn't it, before that, they used to walk with God in the garden. And then basically, they, they, they took this fruit that God told them not to do. And suddenly, they realized they were naked. Suddenly, they, they were afraid of each other, so they clothed themselves. They were afraid of God, so they hid. Fear came in. Whereas actually, the Christian message is, you don't need to fear. That's the message even now. You don't need to fear death. That's the Christian message of hope. You don't need to fear today. You don't need to fear tomorrow. You don't need to fear other people. We live in a society even now where, where we can be surrounded by fear, can't we? Isn't fear why we have to ensure things? When I, I bought a car, golly, last year, I think it was, um, our car got written off in an accident. I'd like to point out my wife was driving it at the time, but we won't go there. <laughs> it wasn't her fault. It's what they all say, but it's just a cheap one. And on Father's Day, I'm not going to push it. So um, buy a car. They then tell me, obviously, I have to have insurance for my car. Now they're trying to tell me insurance for the depreciation in my car. So I can almost insure the lack of insurance. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, God, I guess that's a good idea. You know, the last one was written off, and now I'm paying for this one, and it's quite a bit more than the last. How could I? And I think, God, it's just prying on my fear. You know, so often it can be like that, can't it? That's how we buy. That's why we buy insurance, isn't it? It's fear, fear of the unknown. I think it's that's why half of us keep changing our clothes. It's fear of rejection. I, I think, if I'm really honest, I mean, I guess it's the age I'm at. You think, God, the clothes don't seem to be wearing out. My kids just laugh at me when I come down at breakfast. You're not going out in that, are you? You think, oh, golly, is that how other people see me now? I better change. Oh, I must do my top button up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I knew that. I knew it's just fear of not quite looking the right part, you know. <laughs> Schoolboys used to look like that when I was a kid, but I think I've, I've got to turn my trousers up as well because I know this is where... You see, I just don't want to look like yesterday's man. <laughs> this is fear, isn't it? We can be dominated by fear. Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. I think that's a, a huge challenge for us, isn't it? Where are your eyes? Uh, one, I, I read sev several books on this this week. There's a guy called A.W. Pink. He, he'd written several sermons. He says, faith is not occupied with difficulties, but with him whom all things are possible. Faith is not occupied with difficulties, but with him with whom all things are possible. What are you afraid of? Even this morning, you know what I'm saying? What are you afraid of? So the widow is told by Elijah, don't be afraid, go home, make a fire, bake the bread as you plan. But the first one to eat is Elijah. 
I think, wow, that's a huge challenge as well, isn't it? It's almost like, well, I don't know if it's me as a, as a father. I mean, I'd just like to make a confession that if my Coke can has got lipstick on, it's not because of me. But as a bloke, I offered it straight to my wife. Because as a good guy, that's what you should do, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? You suddenly think, how could I provide? How could I look after? How could... And, and as, a, you know, think, as a parent, you'd be thinking, I want to feed my kid first. I find it fascinating here. It's almost like, no, actually, God comes first. This is an act of faith, isn't it? It's almost like he's calling out to us straight away. Look, are, are you going to trust? See, I love it when people get baptized. Because to me, it's an act of faith. I am trusting him. I tell you, I met with Julie this week, and we're chatting about baptism. I'm excited about this. I met with Anubra as well. I know I'm due to meet some others. I, I love it, because people are saying, I trust him. I, I love it. It's funny. We take the offering. What do I love about that? I love the fact that people say, I trust him. That's why the Bible says, doesn't it, give God your first fruits, not what's at the end of the month. Make an intentional plan. Say, no, I'm going to do it. Why this? Because it's faith. And I think we see this so much in the story. And then I would say that Elijah is then caught up in God and prophesies over this woman. It's almost like the spirit comes upon him and he just speaks out. He says, actually, it's almost like this could be impossible with man, but possible with God. And what does he say? He says this. He says, you go home, you bake me bread, bring it back. And I just want to tell you this. The oil will never run out and the flour will always be there. You think, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a miracle, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest, if this was like a West End show by now, we'd have the Hallelujah Chorus going, we'd have the roll on the drum, dun, dun, dun. I mean, Hallelujah, you know, Tesco's going out of business, you don't need to buy your oil anymore. There's bread that is going to supply. I mean, this is, this is just a huge, incredible, supernatural provision from God. It's like, here is a miracle. Oil, we can think, oh golly, oil's not really good for us, I mean... How do we understand the story? Oil was a massive everyday use for these people. You see, what did they use it for? They used it for baking. They, they used it to anoint travelers. Because if you'd been traveling in a hot country, oil hadn't been invented in those days, you know what I'm saying? If you anointed them, often if they had a dry skin, you, there'd be some oil that would just freshen up their skin. You would use it. For healing properties. We know that from scripture. It's almost like the shepherd would have put some onto a, a lamb or something just where they've had a scratch or a cut. That's why you'd use oil. You would use it as a fuel for your lamp so that you could see at these everyday uses. Oil as well. It was something in this story where you can understand that they anointed the prophet, priest, and king with oil. They used it in worship and sacrifices. They used it in perfume. It was considered a sign of prosperity and abundance especially in Zarephath. How do I know that? Because actually, if we understand something of this story, we'll understand that although, if we just flip back slightly, Julia, to the map, so I know I'm making you jump around, this was all meant to be part of the promised land. So when Joshua went in and he took over the promised land under God and divided it up, Zarephath was included in the promised land. And actually, we know that it was given to a tribe. You could read about it in Joshua 19.20. 
it was given to this tribe as part of the, uh, of the land. And we know that that tribe, when they had previously been blessed by Moses, uh, by, I, I want to make sure I get this right, yeah, by Moses in Deuteronomy 33, the blessing over this tribe at the end of Moses' life was this. Let him bathe his feet in oil. So actually, to be in this place, oil was almost considered the promised inheritance of God. And so it's almost like, actually, it had run out for you. You felt it had stopped. But it's by, by faith in Christ, I believe, that we can receive the promised blessings of God. You see, this story has just got so many deep and rich things. And I think even bigger is this flower that is not used up. You see, what this says to me, and now we are onto the bread one, what this says to me is that God is able to provide food. I love this, don't you? God is able to provide. We see this miracle in this story, which I think is just absolutely remarkable. You know, it's like, you, you're about to die. You've got nothing. God says, I will provide. Are we aware of that? God provides. It, it happens right throughout the Bible. I don't know if you know, but there's a, a story, and I want to make sure I say it right, in two kings. 2 Kings chapter 6, there's four lepers. They, they've got nothing. They think they're about to die. Because they're lepers, they're not allowed into the city. The city's locked up anyway because they're under attack from the enemy. This is the Israelites again. And so the lepers think, oh, what are we going to do? I'll tell you what, let's just go to our enemy. We're going to die anyway. Let's see if we can beg some bread off them. And what happens, they go to the enemy, but God has put such confusion amongst the enemy, they've scattered so these lepers, suddenly they're blessed. And it's almost like, wow, this is amazing. We've got so much food. God has supernaturally provided. They said, look, we shouldn't keep this to ourselves. And I think that's true of us, isn't it? God supernaturally provides. We should not keep this to ourselves. That's why, you know, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where bread is to be found, isn't it? I mean, I've always thought that. But, you know, the Bible is full of these kind of stories. You see, I, I, I can think about the four lepers, but if I'm really honest, then if you know your Bible, you think about the bread, I think of the, the feeding of the 5,000. Some would say this was Jesus' biggest ever public miracle. Because when you read it, it says 5,000 men. And so we think with women and children, this could have been 20,000 people. Jesus took this bread and he fed them. Yet why was he feeding them? Why? Because they'd been so caught up with him and they followed him and they'd listened to him that actually they were dazed from being able to buy it themselves. I mean, he was, he was concerned for them. He said they could go away. They'd be hungry. They could, they could die. Not die. That's a preacher's license. Maybe they'd faint on the way home. Maybe they'd struggle. I feel really bad for them. And so Jesus said, come on, let's give them something. So said, hey, we've got nothing. Hey, we've got this one packed lunch. And Jesus said, okay, let's get them sat down. I'm going to pray for this. We're going to give it out. I mean, what a provision. So it's gone from four to 5,000. But let's be honest, if you know your Bible, you know the biggest story about bread. Surely it's got to be the, the Israelites wandering around, doesn't it? The Israelites wandered all around the desert for 40 years. Why? Because they'd been brought out of captivity. They'd been in Egypt. Moses comes along. We have the 10 plagues. They get out. They suddenly realize, oh golly, we haven't got anything to eat. Let's cry out to God. God then says, I'm going to send you manna. 
Now, we don't know because the Bible doesn't get hung up on numbers quite as much as we do, but we think it could have been one and a half million people that wandered around for 40 years and God rained down manna six days out of seven. Because you know you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, so you got double on the day before. It's like you go out. God provides. God miraculously provides. But actually, if I really had to think about bread, I would think about Jesus Christ himself. Because the, the danger is that we can think here of this story, oh, God provided for one woman. Oh, God provided for four lepers. God provided for 5,000. Or God provided for a nation. Or we could think of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ said in John 6, I am the bread of life. He wasn't saying that I'm just going to provide for one woman for three years because we know that actually it stopped when the drought was over. He wasn't saying that I'm just going to provide for four people. He didn't even say I'm just going to provide one day for a crowd. He didn't even say I'm going to look after one nation for one generation. He said, I'm going to come and I will be bread that actually people can feed on for the whole world. And so when I think of Elijah and I think of this supernatural sort of provision of God, what it takes me to is Jesus Christ who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I guess that would be my question. Have you ever fed upon Jesus Christ? What's that mean? Are you a Christian? Have you genuinely said, oh, Jesus, actually, you're the one that satisfies me? I don't know about you, I mean, there's some great things that we can see in life, aren't there? I had a high and a low day yesterday. Some of you know Russell plays at the Royal Opera House and fortunately managed to get me a backstage pass yesterday. So I'm stood in the pit of the Royal Opera House looking out at all this. I can... I touch the kettle drums that he plays on. You know, I mean, if you'd like to kiss my hands later, that's fine. If not, go to the real McCoy himself. I thought, oh, what an experience. And then I see this opera in the world, opera, and you think, wow, this has been going on for decades. What, a, what an amazing building. And then I go home and watch the game. <laughs> oh, things can just go up and down, can't they? But fortunately, I don't get my satisfaction from either. My ultimate feeding is from Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives me a sense of security and purpose. He's the one, isn't he, that actually really feeds our soul. And I think, actually, if I looked at this miracle uh, of Elijah, this story, what do I think of? One woman that was fed for three years? Or do I think of Jesus Christ that could feed you today? Even whilst they're having those words this morning about chains that could be broken, I just felt God say, even now, this chains of isolation that people say is over their lives. Chains of rejection that you could say is over my life. Chains of disappointment and frustration that is over my life. But we can feed upon Jesus and see those chains broken. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? You see, I think he really is the bread of life. So I would like us to read this story. As we did last week, I'm going to read it too. So you think, oh, Peter, have you made this all up? 1 Kings 17, it says this, Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place 
to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And, please, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Such hopelessness, isn't there? God said to her, don't be, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up. And the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. I just think, what an incredible miracle. But then actually, I can think that about Jesus Christ. I think that about the bread. And this is so often why we, we want to come and break bread together, and I want us to do it this morning, because this is symbolic of Jesus Christ. We don't believe this literally becomes his body. But what we do believe is that actually he's the bread that was given for us. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Oh, Jesus, you're the bread of life. I tell you, we don't have to feed on him for three years until we get something else. We're not just a couple of lepers that we're struggling to get. We can feed on him the bread of life. This is not just for a small nation, for one generation. This is for the entire world. And so when we come and we do this, it's almost like our privilege, isn't it? Of saying, oh, Jesus, this reminds me. I want to come and feed upon you. This reminds me you're the one that really satisfies. You're the one that really fulfills. You know, I know we only take a small bit. Sometimes I think, oh, I'd love to give everyone a loaf and make you sit there and eat the lots. <laughs> Come on, dream bigger. <laughs> Jesus says there's more. What do you mean you can't take it? There's more for you. <laughs> I mean, in some respect, you think, even when we take small things, let's take it believing, actually, he's all that I need. I know we've been doing this regularly as a church. We just felt quite actually, it's great to come again and again, isn't it? And just to say, this is it. What we're going to do this time, seeing as it's Father's Day and we're thinking about men of God, is... All the men are going to come forward and take some bread. And all the men are going to come forward and take a cup. And they're just going to come and serve others. And they're just going to say, actually, let's be those that feed upon Jesus. I know this could be chaotic. And I know that you may end up getting two cups or two lots of bread. Fine. You know what I'm saying? I don't want us to feel we've suddenly become religious on this. I want to say, Jesus, I'm feeding upon you. Jesus, we do thank you so much. You are the bread of life. We want to be those that say we won't fear, but we trust in you. We know with man things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. 
We want to be those that put our trust in you. Not in our own resources. Not in the limited things that we have. Not in, in the despair and, and, and sort of think, oh golly, we're just about to die. No, we come and we trust you. We trust you to provide. We trust you to provide peace with God. We trust you to provide our sins forgiven. We trust you to provide honour where we deserve shame. We trust you to provide security when all we think about is fear. Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread that never, ever runs out. You're the bread that's not just for one lady, one son, one prophet. You're the bread that's for the nations of the world. Jesus, we want to take this. We want to take it as a symbol that we're going to feed upon you and that we're going to take this to others because we want them to feed upon you. So we do want to pray this. Pray your blessing upon this in Jesus' name. Amen. So guys, I want every single guy come out, like take some bread, like take some cups. I know this could be a little bit confusing. Take it round and say, come on, this is Jesus for you. And, and uh, you know, give it to each other as well as to the ladies because I'd like everybody to be taking part.